Well, good evening. It is good to be uh, back speaking again, but I tell you, I love having the opportunity to hear other people preach. That is something that, uh, as a preacher, you don't get as much as other people, uh, but I love it when we get the opportunity, and I love Brother Willie Franklin. Uh, I've known him since I was in high school. Uh, he, uh, he spoke at youth events that I was at as a youth. He, he picked me up and gave me big kisses in front of the, the whole auditorium, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's something special about a Willie Franklin kiss. I don't know what it is. But, uh, but, but uh, I, was, I was super happy to have him uh, in town with us and, uh, and loved uh, being able to hear him this morning. Um, when you think about life and you think about uh, what is most important, you know, there's the good, religious, pious answer that everyone should give that says God is most important. Like you ask that question, you say, yo, of course God's the most important thing in my life. But so often, as we go through life, and we have ups, and we have downs, and we have good days and bad days, and we have things that cause us stress, and things that cause us joy, I think we could all slip into the habit of really the most important thing in life is whatever issue I'm dealing with right now. And then, like, like hopefully God's still around somewhere, but it's like the most important thing in your life can change day to day, depending on what is causing you the most stress or frustration that day. And uh, I want to tonight read through a psalm, Psalm 63. I think there's a lot of things you can learn from this psalm and a lot of directions you can take it. But one of the things that uh, it makes me remember and it makes me think about is the value of making sure whether I'm at a high or a low or giving thanksgiving or lamenting or having a prayer of petition or whatever it is that I'm doing, that God actually is. The, the central uh, locus of my life, that God is what everything else in my life is rooted in and based on and stems from and grows out of. Because in Psalm 63, you get a psalm, and one of the things that I like about it is uh, if you've ever done a study of the psalms or taken a class on psalms or gotten a commentary on the psalms, uh, one of the things that just about every class or commentary does is it divides them up into different types of psalms. Uh, there's, there's genres of psalms within the Psalter. Uh, the whole book of psalms is sometimes called the Psalter. Uh, and, uh, and within the song book of the songs, there's all these different types. And some of them are like messianic psalms. And some of them would be labeled as uh, praise psalms or thanksgiving psalms or lament psalms. Or uh, some of them would be uh, uh, royal psalms that are like to a king. Or some of them would be uh, imprecatory psalms. That's whenever you see a psalmist who's saying something that's like, really harsh about another person, wanting that person to be destroyed or killed or something. That's, that's the language that's used there. And like, there's all of these types of different psalms, and just about every one of them struggles with Psalm 63. Because Psalm 63 is notoriously difficult to classify. Because there are some who would say, I've, you got to make it a, a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, because thanksgiving is an important theme throughout here. And some would say, well, it's a psalm of, of general praise and worship. Some would say it's a lament. And you can read through. We'll, we'll see it. There's lament in there. Some would say it's a royal psalm. He, he, the very last verse, the king will rejoice in God. And it starts talking about the king. And like, there's, there's a bunch of different lenses through which you can look at this psalm. And it makes a lot of sense through all of them. And that makes it really difficult to say, well, this is the type of psalm that it is. And I think the reason why is I don't think it fits neatly into any time you try to, like, 
come up with sections and then fit the Bible into all of your subheadings, uh, sometimes it's difficult because the Bible wasn't written based on our subheadings. And so this is one of those psalms that just doesn't fit neatly into the way we want to categorize it. And I love that because life is like that. Life so often, it doesn't fit neatly into how we think it should go or, you know, every day is a mixture of so many things, you know. And, and so this psalm seems like it is true to life in so many ways. But what's consistent throughout it is that God is, is central. Uh, God is the point. And, uh, and hopefully our lives are like that. You're going to have ups. You're going to have downs. You're going to have all kinds of uh, emotions. You'll have every type of feeling you can imagine. But God should be the center of them all. And you should deal with each of them because of the walk you have with God. And so I want to read through Psalm 63 with some of those thoughts in mind. Now, right before you get to verse 1, this does help us find some setting for it. Uh, if you look where it says 63, most Bibles have something right underneath that. Uh, this psalm, it says, uh, mine says, a thirsting soul satisfied in God. That is a note that the uh, printers of my Bible have put in there to help give you some of the idea of what the psalm is about. A thirsting soul that finds satisfaction in God. That's a beautiful idea. But that's not part of the psalm. That's just a, a helpful note. But then right underneath that, it says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now that's actually tricky because that is not just put in there by the printers of my Bible. That's actually in the ancient manuscripts. But what we don't exactly know about that is, did the author write that? Did David start off and say, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah? Maybe, uh, but, but maybe not. Uh, or did someone else later who was categorizing and arranging these psalms put that? And if it's someone later, is that actually part of like the inspired psalm? Or is it not? Like, are all of those headings inspired, or are they not? And, and uh, you know, I want, you study that out, and, and you come to your own conclusions. I'll say, uh, from my perspective, there are a couple of them that make me pause and think, I'm not sure if that's, if that's actually uh, is who wrote the psalm. Like, there, there's, and if we did a class on the psalms, I'd go into that in more detail. Uh, but, uh, but there are some th things like that that make you think, okay, so I think that might be an editorial note added later. Um, but... Whatever that is, I think generally it's going to be true. Uh, I wouldn't say it's inspired per se, but I'd say it's generally, I think, a helpful note for helping us re read and understand the psalm. Um, I would also say that it, if nothing else, it gives us a very helpful, very ancient interpretation of that psalm. And one of the things that you'll see as you read through Psalm 63 is it has been read in a lot of different ways by different uh, people, uh, both Jews and Christians. Like early church fathers, uh, this was an important psalm, and there's actually a good list of them who mentioned this psalm as something that they would read daily, uh, or, or maybe I'll say nightly. Because it became part of a, of a nighttime tradition that you think of this psalm before going to bed uh, each night. And, and if you look at verse 6, that's one of the reasons why. Verse 6 says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the watches of the night, or the night's watches. And uh, in the Jewish calendar, they divide up the, the night by, not by hours, but by different watches. And so that's why sometimes in the Bible, it'll say something like, in the third watch of the night. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, he says, you know, when I'm in bed late at night, and I'm thinking about what matters most, I'm meditating on, on, on you. And in the watches of the night, every hour of the night, 
you, God, or who uh, is in my heart and in my soul. And so it became associated with a psalm that you read to focus on God at nighttime. Um, but the, the heading right there refers to it as a psalm of David and says he was in the wilderness of Judah. Okay, so if we're trying to put this in a historical setting, which that's, that's, most of the notes don't give you a historical setting. Uh, a couple of them do, uh, but this is one of the few that actually gives you a historical setting. And it says when David was in the wilderness of Judah. And if you read through the life of David, there's a couple of time periods that might be, but they're all rough. Uh, one of them is when he's hiding from King Saul, uh, or, or he's camped out and King Saul is king, and King Saul is, is uh, his, he is positioned against David, uh, wants to have David killed. Um, and so David is hiding uh, during that time. And the other time is during the reign of, uh, of I guess you could say the reign of Absalom. Uh, so David had a son named Absalom. He had a bunch of sons, but one of them was named Absalom. And Absalom ended up usurping the throne. He ended up glad-handing a lot of the people, the important people, and he ended up getting a rather large following. And then he made himself king and was so successful that David actually had to flee. And so David flees to the wilderness. And you see David at those times in the wilderness. And I would say in either one of those settings, or really in so many settings that we find ourselves in throughout life, where it seems like your goals are frustrated, or it seems like what God has in store for you isn't coming to fruition, and you're longing for it, and you're having that wilderness experience, I think this is a good psalm for that. Um, The wilderness is actually a really important setting in the Bible. It's one of the most important settings in in the whole Bible. So much takes place in the wilderness. So many of the most important uh, scenes in in like the the most thematic, uh, thematically rich concepts are wilderness concepts. Like the idea of Exodus. Uh, Exodus is, yes, it is an event that happens in the book of Exodus, but it's also an idea that gets repeated throughout the Bible. And one of the ways it's repeated is by talking about being in the wilderness and yet God being with his people through the wilderness. In the, in the Jewish mind, the wilderness is the uninhabitable lands. Uh, the wilderness isn't any one particular place. It's the place where people can't live, wherever that may be, because there's no water there, there's dangerous animals there, and, and often uh, that was seen as a place of, like, unclean spirits. Like, you don't go in the wilderness. It's a dangerous place. Uh, and so, when you found yourself in the wilderness— usually something bad was happening. Uh, Usually the wilderness is is a place where you find yourself there. uh, Either it's intentional and you don't want to be there long, or your life has taken a wrong turn somewhere. There are a few people who had successful wilderness, uh, you know, lives. Uh, You can see in Genesis, um, uh, you have, uh, you have uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, and, uh, and uh, it was uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael was described as someone who, he ended up living in the wilderness and became like a wilderness guy. And that's, that was a, a rare thing, you know. Uh, he was, he, that took a, a, a certain level of, of uh, manliness and a certain level of, of ability to survive in the wilderness because that's just not the places that people go. Um, but then you have other uh, you know, wilderness stories like, um, like uh, the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, where a lot of that setting is in the wilderness. Uh, you have the book of Isaiah that talks a lot about the wilderness, only it uses it to represent the land between Babylon and back home. 
And the idea is that God will give, uh, uh, you know, in the wilderness there's mountains and valleys that are hard to cross and there's no water and there's no vegetation. And what you're told is that God will, will put, you know, rivers in the wilderness and they will, there will uh, spring trees uh, in the wilderness and, and every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and there will be a highway in the wilderness. And like you have these pictures of the wilderness being turned into Eden, basically, like the wilderness becoming a place of blessing, which is a really rare idea because if you think about the presence of God, the wilderness is the last place you think of. And yet Isaiah picks up on those ideas of God being with his people through the wilderness. It's no coincidence then that Jesus, uh, like in the gospel of Mark, the gospel begins with a voice crying in the wilderness, which is John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord, which is Jesus. And then Jesus goes to the wilderness. And the message of John the Baptist is so radical because instead of saying, go to the temple to find forgiveness of sins, he's saying, go to the wilderness. <laughs> you know, uh, that's where he's preaching. And then he'll go and he'll baptize people in the Jordan. But you have a reversal of what you would expect salvation in the presence of God to be and where you're actually finding it. And you're finding it in the most unique of all places, the wilderness. Jesus then goes to the wilderness. In the Gospel of Mark, he's in the wilderness for 40 days and he's being tempted because that's what happens in the wilderness. You know, that's where the unclean spirits are. That's a dangerous place. He's tempted there. And Mark even says, and he was with the wild animals. Because when you read through, so often the wild animals are associated with the wilderness. And so, anyway, all of that is to say the wilderness is uh, an important biblical concept. And one of the ideas uh, that that, uh, happens with Jesus is like the wilderness becomes the place where God meets his people, uh, which which is a shocking idea. But here in Psalm 63, you have David in the wilderness, meaning he is in a place where people can't survive long. He's in a place that's notoriously low on water. Uh, He's in a place where there would be wild and dangerous animals around. And he's in a place where if you're there, you're likely hiding or something like that, which would fit the setting of, of why he's in the wilderness with King Saul and Absalom. So let's read what David says when he's in the wilderness in verse one. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a a dry and weary land where there is no water. Okay, so what is he thinking about in the wilderness? In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Like, my first thought, if if you told me, all right, you're in a dry and weary land, there's no water, what are you going to be thirsting for? My thought would be water. (laughs) Like, I'm in a land with no water. That's what I'm going to be thirsting for. That's what I want. And yet, what does David say he's thirsting for? He's thirsting for God. My God, you are my God. That expression, you are my God, it sounds so obvious, but in reality, so many other things take that role. So many other things in our lives can take the role of being our God, whether it is a wealth or whether it is, you know, in, some, in the ancient context, like actual idols and other gods. Uh, in our context, it could be pleasure or it could be, uh, um, you know, the pursuit of, of whatever endeavor it is that's not God can sometimes become our God. Our own appetites can become our God. But he wants to clarify from the very beginning that you, my God, are my God, and I will seek you earnestly. It doesn't say that he's seeking uh, a river, or he doesn't say that he's seeking, you know, any of these other things. What he's thirsting for, what his flesh yearns for, is God. Because, and we're going to find this out here in a little bit, 
you come to find out that those other things might give him life. Water and food and shelter, all of those things could help us live. But he's actually found something that is even better than life. And it's something that's rooted in God. And so even in the wilderness, the most important thing, the God of his life, is still God. So wherever you find yourself in life, whether you're having your good days or your bad days, the number one most important thing you need is God. In verse 2, he remembers uh, where he has been with God. He says, thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Uh, And so seeing God, seeing his power and his glory, that's something that takes place in the sanctuary, in the temple or the tabernacle, right? That's not generally something that you see in the wilderness. Uh, Again, that's when the tabernacle is brought to the wilderness, you can. Uh, But the idea is that, like, you have to get out of the wilderness to see the glory of God. And here he is in the wilderness, but he's yearning for God. The start of this psalm is a lot like the start of Psalm 42, which is written by an exile who is in Babylon. uh, And he's thinking about back home when he used to lead in the temple service. And he says, you know, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. It's like a thirsty deer needing that water. My, my soul is needing you. Uh, David is, is in exile right now. And again, he's thinking about the presence of God that he's seen and experienced, and he's longing for that. That's what he's seeking more so than anything else. Verse 3 is where we come to find out uh, why it is that you seek God when you're thirsty. Why it is you seek God when you're hungry. Why in a dangerous situation God is the one that you search for. Verse 3 says, because your loving kindness is better than life. So rather than all of the things that could give him life, you search for the God who is the ultimate source of life, but also, also is the one who's even better than life. Like even if everything in your life fails, if you have God, you have enough. You have the most important thing. You have that which matters more than everything else. Because God doesn't go anywhere, even at death. Like, even if you lose everything you need for life, and death is all you have, if you have God, then you still have everything. And you still have the one who will exist through and beyond death into life immortal. And so, David says, because your loving kindness is better than life. And notice, it is interesting, he doesn't just say, you are better than life, although I think that's certainly part of it, but specifically the loving kindness of God. That word, loving kindness, is one of, uh, if you're ever going to do like a a study on a Hebrew word, I would suggest this one first and foremost. I think it's the most important Hebrew word in the Bible, uh, or at least one of them. Um, But this is the word that God uses to describe himself to Moses. Uh, Thereafter, the children of Israel sinned uh, by making the golden calf. And uh, then uh, God talks about finding a new people instead of them because they already broke his covenant. Like they said they wouldn't worship any other gods and they wouldn't make any idols. And then they immediately do those things. And so God is free of his covenant with them. They already broke it. If you make a deal with someone and you both have your end of the bargain to live up to and they immediately break theirs, you're free of yours. Like you don't have to continue with that deal anymore. Uh, God doesn't have to stick with them. And yet he does. Why does he? It's because of that word right there. It's because that is the very character and nature of God. My Bible translates it as loving kindness. And I think that's good. Um, 
You know, I think kindness is part of it. Uh, Certainly love is a part of it. But uh, other translations uh, will translate it as something like steadfast love, which I like that a lot. Uh, A loyal love, I think, is a great translation of it. Because it's kind of the idea of God will love them, but he's also going to be steadfastly loyal to them. Why does God then immediately just renew the covenant and give them the Ten Commandments again and start over? It's because of this. It's because he's going to be loyal to them and loving to them even when they are disloyal to him. Even when they are faithless, he remains faithful. Even when they are disloyal, he remains loyal. Even when they're unloving, God will always be loving. And so you get this idea that God's steadfast, immovable, rock-solid, always abounding and growing love is the greatest thing that there is. It's even greater than life. In that love of God that sticks with us even when we're unworthy of it and even when we've done nothing to earn it or, or to attain it ourselves— The fact that God still has it for us should motivate us to live in a certain way. So right here in verse 3, David's going to begin speaking about all of the things that are now a part of his life and a part of who he is because he's found that even more important than life right now is the steadfast love of God. So again, I said this psalm applies to so many situations because when you boil everything down to what's the most important thing in life, what is better even than life itself, It's the steadfast love of God. And that is always present. You know, in the book of Lamentations, uh, there's a lot of lamenting. Uh, You know, that's why it's called that. Uh, The book of Lamentations is about a terrible and awful time period in Israelite history. And as you read through it, just about all, it's it's a collection of poems, and they're all uh, about the devastation of God. But in the middle of it, in chapter 3, you get this idea that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But when it says the steadfast love of the Lord, steadfast love, that's this word right here. And it's saying it never ceases. So like even in the darkest of dark books of the Bible, you have this glorious verse right in the middle of it about the steadfast, enduring, loyal love of God. And it never comes to an end. It's new every single day. And so because of that, every day we have something to wake up and be thankful for. Every day we have something to wake up and give praise for. And so as he considers that love of God, which is better even than life, it gives him something to praise God for every day. So verse 3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's one thing that's going to happen. His lips now have a job. And their job is to praise God. One thing to notice as we continue to read through here, uh, just think about uh, the mouth and the lips. They're going to be mentioned a couple of times, and there's going to be a contrast that takes place uh, here in just a minute, and we'll we'll see that as we keep reading. But my lips will praise you, verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. Your steadfast love is better than life. And so as long as I have life, I'm going to use it to bless you. He says in verse 4, I will lift my hands in your name. Uh, lifting of the hands is a prayer posture. It's a, it's a way of petitioning and asking God. Like a, you can picture like a child reaching up for a parent type of thing. He's saying, I'm going to pray, bless you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to lift up my hands to you in your name. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied 
as with marrow and fatness. Um, so his soul is satisfied as long as he has God. And it's like, I'm just as satisfied as if I were eating this big, delicious steak dinner, you know. Uh, he's in the wilderness. He doesn't have a big, delicious steak dinner. But his soul is satisfied as if he was because he's found the thing that's even better than life. He's found the thing that can give him satisfaction no matter what he's going through. No matter what day of the week it is, he's found that which can give him satisfaction. This might be the language, by the way, of uh, the, the eating of the marrow and the fatness uh, of sacrifice. Uh, when you would offer like a Thanksgiving sacrifice to God at the temple, at the sanctuary, which he mentioned just earlier, uh, you would offer your sacrifice. And there were some sacrifices like a burnt offering where the entire sacrifice is consumed on the altar. Like the whole thing is burnt up and the whole thing goes up to God. But what happened with a lot of them, uh, like a Thanksgiving offering, is some of it is burned on the altar and goes up to God. And some of it is cooked and then taken off the altar and you eat it. And, and so sacrifice was actually a meal that took place. And, and the idea, the logic of the meal is some of it is on the altar and that's the part that goes to God. And some of it you eat and that's your part. And also the priest eats some. But when you do that, like... It's a, sh- it's a fellowship meal. It's a sharing of this meal with you and God and the priest. And it's like, you get to have a meal with God. That's the Thanksgiving sacrifice. And that closeness of, with God, being at the temple, offering uh, your sacrifice, enjoying a delicious meal in the very presence of the Lord, that's a satisfying feeling. Like, you can't feel more close to God than in that moment. And here he is in the wilderness, recognizing the steadfast love of God is with him. Even though it seems like his kingdom's being stolen from him, he's having to live in the wilderness, his son has betrayed him, if it's the time period of Absalom. But like, you can find so many dark moments in his life, but he's saying, but God's love is still with me. And so to me, it's, I'm just as satisfied as if I were back at the temple enjoying that Thanksgiving sacrifice with God. Uh, I have that closeness with God because his steadfast love doesn't go away. And it can reach even into the wilderness. Verse 5 continues. Another thing. You know, he's given this list. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with the marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. And so, again, uh, the end of verse 3, my lips will praise you. His lips are joyful in verse 5. And his mouth offers praises. And so... uh, while he has every reason to not be joyful, he's going to be joyful. That reminds me of Paul uh, and Silas. They're in prison in Philippi. Every reason in the world to not be joyful. They are in prison. They've been beaten. They're, they've done nothing wrong. Uh, it's like they're being punished for doing the will of God. They could be offering lament uh, or, or uh, they could be, you know, uh, in frustration, uh, pouring out their heart to God, which, I mean, would be, it, it, you can read Psalms and see where people have done that. You know, that's not, that's not a sinful thing. Like, they could have been lamenting their situation. But instead, what we find them doing is in the moment of despair, they're singing praises. And I think that's what the psalmist is talking about right here. His lips will continue to praise even in the barren wilderness. And when he goes to sleep at night, you know who he's going to think about? He's going to think about God. Um, you could think about the devastation all around you. You could think about all of those things that cause you anxiety. But in verse 6 through 8, he says, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the watch of the night. For you have been my help 
In the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. So now he's singing for joy. But notice, and it's a beautiful idea, and it's something that if we get so busy in life, we can forget to do this. But he lies on his bed at night, and he thinks about God. And in the watches of the night, he meditates on God, and it reminds him of something. It reminds him that God actually has been his help. And I bet if we take an hour and we just spend time, you know, as the song says, counting your blessings. If you spend time thinking about the difficult situations you've been in in your life in the past and how God has seen you through, I bet that's a pretty encouraging list. If you spend some time thinking about just the things that you have right now that you don't even necessarily need, just the things that you have, I bet you have a list of things to be thankful for. When you think of the things that you need and you see that you have those things, I bet you can come up with a pretty good list of things to be thankful for. And I bet laying on your bed thinking about ways in which God has blessed you will actually help strengthen you as you approach new times of difficulty. If you will remember that God has seen you through the difficulties of your life up to this point, it will probably help you as you encounter new difficulties along the way. God's steadfast love is ever-present and always enduring. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In fact, it's better even than life. And so think about it. Remember it. Rejoice in it. Praise God for it. Think about ways that you have overcome and give praise and thanks and joy to God in response to that. That's how you overcome the wilderness when you find yourself in it. That's how you overcome the difficulties that David is enduring right now. And he remembers that he's been in the shadow of the wings of God. And that's where he's going to sing. That's the picture of a, of a mother uh, you know, bird protecting her young. That's what God has been for him. So he's going to give praise for that. In verse 8, he says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And so even if there's nothing else to grab onto, he can cling to God. And God will be right there with his right hand to hold him tight. Verse 9 through 11, as so often happens in Psalms, there's a shift. (laughs) And in verses 9 through 11, I think we've seen so far the value of seeking God, as he mentions right there in verse 1. I will seek you earnestly. Uh, the value of, of remembering God, as he talks about in verse 2, of like remembering being in there in the sanctuary. In, in verse 6, remembering God when you're in bed and, and meditating on the ways that God has uh, been with you. On blessing God or, or praising God in verses 3 and following. Like There's all of these different things where there's worship, there's praise, there's thanksgiving, there's trust. But also, and I think that last one that I just mentioned is what's important for this final section. It's that idea of trust. It's like, it's one thing to praise God and to worship God, but if you forget about him the next time a trial arises, then perhaps what we need to work on is our trust in God. And he has trials. We have the wilderness. We have the fact, he already mentioned it in verse 1, the weary land where there's no water. But apparently he also has enemies, which again, Saul and Absalom, both of those settings make sense for him having enemies. But in verse 9, he says, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword and will be prey for foxes or jackals. And so what he mentions right there is that there are real enemies who are out there trying to kill him. But he's going to trust in God 
that even those who seek his life, they're the ones who are going to end up in the grave, and they're the ones who are going to end up experiencing the dangers of armies and of the wilderness. Notice when he mentions they will be the prey of foxes, or some of your Bibles might say jackals. Uh, those are wilderness animals. Like when you read uh, different passages like in Isaiah or, uh, or Job, uh, both of them will talk about with these wilderness settings, and they'll give these lists of animals that are there. Like that's one of them. And so I think what he's mentioning is that God will be with me and even though right now all I, all I see is wilderness and all I know are enemies, I trust in God that I'll be delivered from both. And then, verse 11, he ends with three encouraging words of what he sees happening. Uh, but the king will rejoice in God. And so uh, the king will do that. Well, if it's David, uh, you know, is he talking about himself? Or, uh, you know, is that the, the role that he's supposed to have as king? The king will rejoice again. You know, it's like the, the king will rejoice in God through this and uh, will be restored to his rightful place. But he sees good pictures of the stability of the kingdom in Israel. And the king is going to put his trust and rejoice in God. Uh, verse 11, everyone who swears by him will glory. So then the king's going to rejoice in God. And then everyone who then trusts in the Lord enough to swear by him, because there's nothing else that, uh, you're, that can get power to your words. But if you trust in God, uh, you, the one who uh, swears by him will glory. And then verse 11 ends by saying, For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So that might be another reference to his enemies. But notice the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. If you contrast the final phrase of verse 11 with the final phrase of verse 5, you see the different jobs that mouths can have and what the result will be. The mouths that speak lies will be shut or stopped. Yet, verse 5, my mouth is open as it offers praises with joyful lips. Use your mouth to offer praises to God throughout your life when you see a clear path forward and when you don't. When you have a reason uh, that is obvious for optimism— and when that optimism is harder to find, you open your mouth to sing praises to God. And when you do so, you bring God with you into each of those situations in life. Whether you're in the wilderness or you're at the, 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 the sanctuary. You see both, both mentioned right here. And wherever you find yourself, God is present. Put your love and your trust in him. Because his steadfast love, no matter how old you are or where you are or what you're going through... His steadfast love is present, and it's with you, and it's better even than life. And so remember that every day of your life. There's something even greater than life that God has, and it's his love. And uh, if there's anyone here tonight who you look at your life, and if you feel perhaps you've been wandering away or drifting from the presence of God or from his love, his love is very much present and you can accept it. You can be cleansed by it. You can be forgiven by it. In the person of Jesus, his love was demonstrated on the cross so that you can receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And if there's any need uh, to have your sins washed away in baptism, if you'd like the prayers of the church, we're more than willing to help in any way that we can. If you would, come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.